This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the old city of Jerusalem, at Isha Torah, overlooking the Temple Mount. Today we are discussing uh, how we deal with other traditions, because after all, Judaism does seem ethnocentric. I mean, we, we, most Jews think, so, think the world revolves around us, and, and Gentiles actually think that as well. I was recently at a sports bar. <laughs> in the business lounge in Seattle, waiting for my flight, and I decided over an ice-cold, delicious beer to um, ask the Gentiles around that we were all watching some game together, which was the Seattle Seahawks versus the L.A. somethings, which was really cool because my family was at the game in L.A. And here I was in Seattle watching this game where my parents and siblings were. But anyway, I was asking them how many Jews there are in the world. I asked everybody. I asked the businessman, I asked the waitress, I asked the guy pouring the beers. And the, the smallest number I got was was a billion. <laughs> and they were really trying hard. They were like asking me all kinds of questions and they're like, well, I mean, you, you guys do, you know, you, you're well represented. Uh, a billion? <laughs> and they were like two, two billion, the waitress was at three billion. You know, it's almost half the world's population. But <laughs> anyway, so, many Gentiles just don't, they can't figure it out how 14 million people have such a big impact on the society that, that we're just like, we're in, we're, we, just, we just show up in every single field and we show up at the top of every single field. Now, you can explain that intellectually because we're, you know, one index point higher than the rest of society because the average IQ of, of Jewish people is 115, which is like, that's not impossible. We're the, we, we are. There's nowhere on the planet where there's any society that hits. I don't even think a hundred as a society. It has individuals at a hundred, or maybe I think 105. I think there's another country somewhere where it's 105. But any Jewish person's at 115 on average. Obviously, we probably drop down to 80 on one end of the spectrum, and one and 200 on the other end. But the average is. Uh, around 115. So that might be one reason for it, but that isn't the real reason for it. And one of the major reasons for it is the, uh, is the three Ds. And the three Ds come from Sinai. These are the Sinai three Ds. And they are um, distracted, depressed, and devoted. And we outrate the world in these three things. Distracted, depressed, and devoted. So, for example, when you got a really high IQ and you're trying to you're trying to pretend Sinai never happened and that there's no such thing as Torah and Judaism. So making a million dollars isn't gonna be enough because then Sinai is gonna creep in again. And the whole the whole because we have a collective subconscious reality that we were all touched as prophets. Every single one of you had prophecy. There's no one in this room who didn't have an incarnation where you're a prophet. As long as you're Jewish, you've been a prophet. Because every single Jew standing at Sinai was a prophet. 
Now, you might have even been a prophet more than once because you might have been one of the prophets during that time. There were prophets and prophetesses in the millions running around Israel at any given time. First temple period, we had prophecy school, which today we call yeshivas, but you, you would be, right now, if you were in a program like this, you'd be training in prophecy. Now, training in prophecy doesn't mean you get it. Just like training in university doesn't mean you get rich. But training in prophecy did create the vessel. And then once you had that vessel, so then you could get prophecy. You could potentially get prophecy. Prophecy is a very, very high level, and it's only from God that you get in the end. But you've got be, to be a fitting vessel for that kind of uh, reception, for, to receive that kind of thing. So we were all prophets, and we're all incarnations of those prophets. And so you can go down the line... Thousands of years from Sinai. Right now we're at 3,330 years since Sinai. It's easy to remember, guys. 3,330. Try that number. 3,330. Easy to remember. And, and what I'm really excited for is three Shavuos is from now. It'll be 3,333. So at 3,333 from Sinai. So it's easy to remember this one too. And, um, but you can take a family that has been secular for generations and you will find them always in these three. So the 3Ds are distracted. So if you have a really high Q and you've got to distract yourself, so no matter what it is you develop, whether it be financially or creatively or uh, you know, in any endeavor, your job is to distract yourself from, from this spirit of prophecy of Sinai. You have to distract yourself. And it is not easy to distract yourself from Sinai. It's just not easy. I mean, how do you distract yourself from something like that? Prophecy, that you were a prophet in a different lifetime? I mean, that's heavy-duty stuff. And that's not, e- not easy to distract yourself. So if you were a prophet in a previous lifetime, you're either going to devote yourself to that, you'll either be devoted to that. That was probably something like trillionaire from China. He's had, he's had that look like he owns everything. So, you guys see that guy? So, you're, you're either, you're either going to be devoted to that fact, distra- distracting yourself from that fact, which means you're going to be win- winning all kinds of Nobel Prizes and stuff. Have you ever seen, you ever seen those websites, you can look it up online, where you see where they took the Jews out of the countries they're from that won Nobel Prizes? You, know, you ever seen that? They extract all the Jews from Soviet, former Soviet Union, they extract all the Jews from the U.S., all the Jews from Europe, they just extract them all, and they make them in, as if they're a country, which means, which means the Nobel Prize that the Soviet Union won is going to shrink by a lot, and the Nobel Prize that the U.S. won is going to shrink by all the Jews they extracted. And then you just make the Jews the, their own country of Nobel Prizes. You ever seen this? This is cool to watch. So what happens is the other countries drop off quickly. Then you got, because you have large populations in, uh, you know, Russia and U.S. goes for a while. And then, you know what happens? They drop out. And then you can literally tape down the scroll button because it just keeps going and going and going and going and going and going. I mean, it really just keeps going. And that's the distracted people, because we were at Sinai. And if you want to, if you want to somehow mask the fact that you were at Sinai, you know you're gonna you're gonna have to be really good at something, and you're gonna have to keep upping it and upping it and upping it and upping it. And they're gonna be throwing you Nobel prizes. 
or at least they're going to throw you a dinner for dedicating some building somewhere. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get me some water. No water around here. You'd be willing, since you're standing, just to find some water somewhere. Sometimes there's water behind the desk. And behind the bar over there, you might get me a cold beer. Just kidding. Behind the bar over there, there might be cups, and I'll take tap water. I'm desperate at this point. Okay. Um, now, what about all the people who aren't so good at distracting themselves? Where do they go? They go depressed. They go depressed. Why do they go depressed? Because, because if you have a sense that there's something deeply meaningful, but you can't figure out what that meaning is, you just don't find it, either because you were numbed by Judaism by being raised in it, that's called FFB, or you were, or you were not raised in Judaism, so you don't even know that's available. That's an available meaning. So you have this like incredible thirst for meaning. You know, it reminds me of a story when I was when I was in uh, university. Which, sorry to giggle, but I wasn't really there. I was just near there. And but when I was in university. I had an exam the following day, and so I was told that if you study all night, it helps. So I went into the study hall, but that didn't go very well because there were these two uh, people in the study hall who, of course, I immediately struck up a conversation with because I'm such a people person that I couldn't quite crack the books yet. I had to first hang out a little bit with the people in there. Anyway, that conversation went till sunrise. You know those conversations where... They like they happen to you sometimes where you talk about the meaning of life and like the the you talk about like what it's all about. You know those what it's all about conversations, and you just you don't get tired. And you see the sunrise, and it's just the greatest. Those great conversations. So that was the conversation I had, and then I paddled out. Once it's daylight, I'm going to surf. So I surfed, and then I called my mom after surfing, and told her about this conversation. You know what she said to me? It was such a sweet thing to say. She said, those, those, conversation, those conversations are what life's all about. Those conversations are what life's all about. What a nice thing to hear from your mom. Because that meant that, that meant that my experience of having had such a conversation was, was something that I want to seek. I want more of these conversations. And I really sought those conversations. And, and I, I noticed that it started, it started like causing a selection of who I'd be close with, because if they can't have that conversation, we're not going to be that close. I don't mind. I'm very happy with people. I love everybody. But if you're not going to have that level of conversation, so that's going to be the edge of our relationship. And, I, and it's very interesting that you could actually watch my dating over the years was always the second that someone said something like, can we talk about something lighter? <laughs> She didn't realize that that meant it's over. And then, of course, wanted to know what went wrong. And I said, you said the forbidden words. Anyway, when I got to Jerusalem after seeing the sunrise for the first nine days in a row, I was out in the square... I'm not saying I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep at night. You know, because night's great times for these conversations. Anyway, I saw the sunrise my first nine days in a row. And there I was out in the square, 
still having this conversation. And I realized out there, we're doing a standing room. You can come back. I realized <laughs> that we are the nation of the conversation. We are the nation of the conversation. And that is because we're built for this kind of meaning orientation. We're the nation of the conversation. And if you think about it, like what really goes on with Jews, like our building next door where everyone's studying, what's going on over there? It's conversations. They're having conversations. They're Talmudic conversations. Just bring those chairs right up to here, guys. Right up here. Is that mayor? What's up, guys? The people in the study hall at Aish next door, they're having Talmudic conversations. Um, they're all dialogue. Am I, is my shirt untied? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> is the back untied? Yeah. Did I stretch earlier? Big stretch? Yes, you did. Uh, you feel free to tell me if my shirt got untied next time. You know, I, I mean, I've taught classes where there's like piece of filter fish in my beard and everyone's afraid to tell me and later I go I'm in the bathroom looking in the mirror and I'm like how long's that been there and why didn't they tell me you know is my zipper also down like what else are you not telling me so if you ever want to do a favor to a public speaker is let them know at any point that something's on their face okay. now um, all the dialogues in the Talmud, those are conversations that were had. And what are those conversations? They're dissecting um, Torah, and they're, they're trying to get down to the truth of it all. Now, there are macro conversations about like the reality of existence that I had in the study hall in university, and then there's micro conversations that need to be had that are about like the details of, let's say, how to be good, how to be good. I had a hippie guy who was like in these classes. Once he came up to me on the roof up here, he's like, Rabbi, I don't need Judaism because in the end, it's enough for me just to be good. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, what do you think all these details are? This is just like being good on the, on the, in the minutia, in the micro. And what are we doing here? If not just being good about details, but how would you guys like to be married to somebody who was only good about the big stuff, but like didn't think the small stuff mattered. Hey, would you want that? Are you married to someone like, is that the kind of relationship you want? So we're really all just in a conversation about how to be good here. And when we're doing, when we're studying the actual Talmud, we're just going into the fine details of what, it, what, is, to, what is it to be good as a human being in this world. Just another one on the subject of being good is uh, I met an old man old Israeli man on a bus stop, really old guy. And uh, we're talking, the bus didn't seem to be coming, so we're talking, talking, and he finally looks at me and he says, he says, Rabbi, I don't need Judaism. I'm a good person. <laughs> and uh, I looked at him and I was like, I looked at him and I was like, what does that mean? He says, well, I mean, I don't, 
hurt anybody. I don't speak badly about anybody. I, I'm helpful to people. I've spent my whole life giving to people. And I said, well, you seem to be really, really good to people. But people didn't create you. People didn't create you. And so being good to people is lovely. Certainly if I were in a relationship with him, I'd like to be it. It's nice to know he'd be good to me. But I didn't make him. I didn't create this man. You'll notice that in the Torah. You'll notice, yeah, you can close it. You'll notice that in the Torah that many mitzvahs are between us and others. Many mitzvahs are between us and God. Now, you can also meet people with black attitude who don't seem so worried about others and do seem more worried about the relationship with God. There are people like that. And you meet secular people who are so good with others and they're not really good with God. But it's clear from the Torah that we got commandments for both. My tefillin is nothing to do with others. My tefillin has to do with my relationship with God. And so I have other mitzvahs that are tzedakah, like people coming to my door and me doing something for them and sharing my money with these people. And so that's between me and my fellow. But we have, we have the mitzvahs are broken down between the two. But I don't think any of us should start calling ourselves a good person until we've got ourselves cleared away with both God and others. They're, they're both necessary. Before you want to start patting yourself on the back for being a good person. Hey, you know what's amazing? I just spoke to a really smart person who said, he, someone asked him if he was happy. And he says, I think I'm happy. I'm not sure I'm happy. And he said that he only knows one person who's happy. And he knows a lot of people, and he's actually a brilliant man. And guess what? He said, I'm the happy person. That he's, he's like, he's like, I have about 10 people I suspect are happy. You're the only person I know is happy. And I was so excited. Because I didn't know I was happy. I had no idea. I mean, I think I'm happy. But he actually, like, I feel like, like I got the happy uh, stamp. I got a happy stamp. And, and then he went on to explain why I'm the only happy person he knows. He says, I'm the only happy person he knows because my happiness is self-generated, whereas everyone else's happiness is somewhat dependent on how they're going to be inter- others are going to be interacting with them, how they're going to be doing, and stuff like that. That's a major accomplishment, considering my, my biggest fear in the world is rejection. I mean, that is for sure, like, I really want you people to like me. Like, I really do. And so... And so, but I've gotten over that years ago because I realized it was killing me because it meant I'll have to not have integrity because I'll be too busy making everyone like me instead of living my truth and being tr- authentic. It's years ago, meaning, meaning about 17 years ago, I, I stopped letting others generate me because this horrific, I mean, I'm telling you, I get panicked over social interaction. I mean, I, get, I, I don't anymore, but I got panicked. And I lived with tremendous tremendous, uh, what is it called? There's a term for it. I forgot the term. What's it called? Social? Social anxiety. Tremendous social anxiety. I mean, so badly that I would shake. I would have a tremor. And and my digestion 
would shut down so badly that surgeons said they were going to remove my colon and I was getting called already to make a date for the surgery because it was all locked into my colon area. And, and, uh, and I just finally realized that all of it was linked to this horrific fear that people aren't going to like me and, and really a deep down feeling like I'm not really worth liking that I'm not like me and my core and it's not, I'm not really worthy of being liked. And, and then I realized, wait a second, like, okay, yeah, I believe I'm not really worthy of being liked, but do I have to lose my colon over that? Like, that's too much. So I said, that's rock bottom. Once you're at rock bottom, there's only one way out. Which way? It's up. So rock bottom is when they're taking out your colon. So, so Baruch Hashem, I got out of that. And, uh, and I did. I really got out. And I, I've, I consider myself someone very much worthy of love and connection. And, and, uh, and which is really great because it's made me, it's made, it really built my career as a public speaker because now I can say the truth. And, you know, you understand, I can say the truth. And, and without that fear of, of the kickback and the pushback. And I, I take the pushback. And I get it. Believe me, I can push back. You, know, you go, you go live and say whatever comes to you, without any fear of what anyone's going to say, and you're, you'll get pushback. So I get, I get the pushback, and I, I let it push. It's kind of like a massage. And if I contradict anything in Torah, I retract immediately. I retract because I, I'm into truth. And if I missed a point that some rabbi saw me live video says that you missed it, you know, you blew that one, rabbi. So then I get back online and retract it. Anyway, anyway, so we are the nation of the conversation. And the de- what's the depressed mode come from? The depressed mode comes from that my yearning for meaning. I have a tremendous yearning for meaning. I was at Sinai. I got the download of all reality in a previous incarnation. So I don't remember that. But it's still deep inside my soul. It's inside the tissues of my being. And if I don't have something to fill that space called Sinai, it's like, it'd be like a part of your heart has like this glass realm that's etched in it is the word Sinai. And it's empty. And all that you're given is just MTV and, and McDonald's and shopping, sports cars, and smartphone video games. So then you're going to get depressed. Because when you have a yearning for deep meaning and that deep meaning never gets fulfilled, it leads to depression. And who was the famous author, psychologist who spoke about this from the Holocaust? Victor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is a must read. And, and he talks about the survival of those who <laughs> held on to meaning amongst, after the Nazis had ripped out all possible meaning left in your life in those in those torture chambers they were living in. But anyone who could hold on to meaning might, might survive. Might. And so, and so don't take meaning lightly. And unfortunately, the psychological world has, has greatly underestimated it and put people on medications who really just needed meaning in their lives, but deep meaning in their lives. And what we do for people who are raised in it raised in Torah, who were numbed in the process, is that they have to heal. They have to heal their relationship with the Torah. 
You can do it, though. You can do it. I did it. I had a, I had a, a DOA mitzvah, a dead-on-arrival mitzvah. You know what that mitzvah was? It's pretty uh, horrible mitzvah to have DOA. It was tefillin. Every mitzvah I took on, I took on because I was ready to. And it turned out that all my roommates were ready as well, here at Aish. So we kind of were like, it was three of us, we were like the three musketeers, and there were a couple other guys always hanging around too, so we are like kind of the f- six musketeers. But for sure, the three of us took everything on together. And, and we were really excited to do each thing, and we had, now had sitzes on, and we had kippahs on, and we were learning Torah all day, and we were now becoming Shomer Shabbos, etc. And, and uh, Shomer Nagia, and like we were taking on everything. They, for some reason, reached the mitzvah of tefillin before I did. I don't know what happened to me. I was totally on par with all of them until tefillin. When it came to strapping leather black boxes on, and I think I had PTSD from these kind of bearded Chabadniks chasing me around when I was a kid. You know, like, I mean, I know they meant well. And, you know, I'm sure if they had more time in their day, they might have actually struck up a conversation before trying to actually strap me up. But the, but I think I had a little PTSD from that because there's no reason I shouldn't have been on, in, on schedule with the roommates for Tefillin Day. But, like, right when they reached the chance to, like, start that mitzvah, I wasn't ready. And what happened was a gang of five of us, five of them, they said, hey, we're going down to the hotel." with one of the Aish rabbis, and we're putting on tefillin. It's time to start tefillin. And I was like, okay. And as you guys know, my biggest fear is rejection. So like, so like, oh man, go to the kotel and put on tefillin. And I was like there. And I'll never forget the words of this rabbi. The rabbi says to us, now that you're putting these on, you never miss a day. I'll never forget that. We're talking like this whole conversation, this whole thing happened. 27 years ago you'll never you never miss a day and I was just thinking like you never miss a day you never miss a day and and it got so bad that that even like six years later seven years later whatever just touching my tefillin meant going back going to the bathroom Remember my digestive thing. So just touching the back. I mean, go to the back. Now, I already went to the bathroom. I'm going to pray. I, you go to the bathroom before you pray, especially Shachris, which is an hour. You know? So I would go grab my tefillin to go pray, and I'd have to go back to the bathroom. And sure, I'd have to take off the tefillin and go back to the bathroom. And so this is years later. Like, this is seven years, eight years later. I'm, like, still dealing with this. Ten years later. So you could see my relationship to tefillin was like, it had to do with peer pressure. It was, it was the wrong reasons. And, but imagine a, imagine a little kid bar mitzvah boy who's not really ready for tefillin, who's from a Haredi family, you know, or any modern Orthodox family, you know, as long as the parents put on, and the father puts on tefillin every day and the siblings do, well, guess what? You're in tefillin now, aren't you? And you'll notice that the majority of disgruntled teenagers, like the last thing they want to touch is their tefillin. You know, there's a whole society of 
kids who still put on tefillin, but they put it on right before sundown. <laughs> Meaning they wake up whatever they wake up. They do whatever they do. And then right before sundown, like they run and put on their tefillin. The whole society of these kids now out there. In fact, you can almost guess that for every kid you see from the black hat community, who's, let's say, 20, I would say for every kid you see, I don't know how many of them, but one out of uh, not a big amount are going to get their tefillin on right before sundown. And, and that's the issue with Torah. Is like, and the, I'm going to bring this up as a subject in general now. Is like, how do you get kids to love commandments that they're f- kind of were forced into? How do you get kids to love Judaism when they've been spoon-fed Judaism since childhood? Like, how do they ever make it theirs? So at a certain point, I said to myself, I can't go on with this tefillin mitzvah of mine. I'm not going to not put them on. I'm definitely putting them on. I was a rabbi already. And I'm suffering this thing. And it's like, I'm not going to not put on tefillin, but what do I do? And so you know what I did? I decided that I was going to resuscitate the dead mitzvah, because that mitzvah was dead. Because how do you, how, what does it mean to be alive? How do you make something living? It's spear ritual. The rituals, the tefillin, the spirit behind it is, is why you're doing it what, it, what you're up to. But you realize that my spirit was, there was no spirit in it. So what do you call a rich, what do you call a, a body without a soul? What's that called? Dead. Dead. So the spirit is, what is spirit? Spirit's soul. What is ritual? It's the body of something. So you can video it, it's got body to it. So ritual's body, spirit is soul. For something to be spiritual, you need the body and the soul, but I didn't have the soul. So I had a dead mitzvah. And so I decided I was going to do tchias amazing, resuscitate the dead. And what I did was I started with uh, buying, I, I found out who was the very best sofer in Jerusalem, the best scribe. And I ordered my parshas, that, that's the, the parchment inside the tefillin that are scribed with Shema Yisrael and, and other paragraphs, from the Torah, I, my parshas themselves were uh, $1,250, just the parshas. And I sat on the bench with the scribe, meaning he sat on this bench and worked on my tefillin, and I sat next to him. And I was with him for that. And he was writing in my name, like they were being written for me. I commissioned them. And I wouldn't even let him bring them to, to the checker. I brought them to the checker. And, and then I went to order the boxes, and I, I was there, and I was part of the whole experience and the process of all these. Then I went to speak to Rebis. I went from Rebbe to Rebbe to discuss the commandment of tefillin, see what they said about it. And then I studied books about tefillin and uh, learned all about it and a lot of Kabbalah about it. And finally, it all came together with my new pair of tefillin. And ever since then, I feel, can't say it's my number one commandment because my name is Yom Tov and my commandments generally are holidays. Those are my, my number ones. But, but it's high up on the list of something I'm into is tefillin. And I meditate in my tefillin and I, and I pray in my tefillin. And I'm into my tefillin. I even have another pair of tefillin that's according to another, another opinion of the order of the Parshas. So I actually have two pairs of tefillin. And I wear that pair of tefillin. Also, uh, you know, after I wear the regular tefillin, I put on the second pair. So I like resuscitated this mitzvah. 
And maybe for all of us, the way we have to, for people raised observant, is the way you resuscitate commandments is to, is to get really into it. You'll notice most people who feel the commandment's dead for them, they go away from it. But what if you just went, like, really into it? Like, really studied it? Like, if Shabbos to you is, like, not exciting anymore or inspirational, like, maybe get really into Shabbos with all its study. It's, it's one way. Okay. So, distracted, depressed, and the last is devoted. And devoted means that that you have taken that part of you, that sign up, and totally dedicated yourself to it. Now, this week is Parshas Yisro. And we see in Parshas Yisro, if I had a chumash, that'd be great. Yeah, here. Um, okay. So when you look in Parshas Yisro... Is like this. Now, everyone realize we are talking about a master idolatrous priest here. Like we're talking about a person who's served every idol known to man, understands all the spiritual realms. He's a he's a he's like of all the Gentiles who understand spirituality, he's the top. He's the top. This guy is the highest spiritual level that it probably any Gentile on earth could reach at that point in history. Now, he happens to be the father-in-law of Moses. <laughs> you know, I wonder if it was embarrassing for Moses to have a shver like this, you know, to have a father, a shver is a Yiddish for father-in-law. It means difficult. So imagine having a... <laughs> can you imagine, like, can you imagine, Yossi, like, bringing a, uh, to your parents... In, uh, in England, you bring home a... You say, yeah, this is my new father-in-law. Okay, she converts to Judaism. But you bring home this guy with, like, a big bone through his nose. <laughs> like, you know, giant earlobes and stuff. And he's, like, the high priest of some, like, African... You know, some African tribe. And your father says, oh, wow. Let's just say the guy's name was Jethro, Okay. And your father's like, oh, wow. And he says, um, oh, the minister of Midian. That's great. And out he comes. You imagine now Moses, the leader of the Jews. So who's the leader of the Jews? Imagine Rav Chaim Kanievsky now. <laughs> of Chaim Kanievsky, the leader of it, like he's probably the biggest rabbi in the world today. So if Chaim Kanievsky comes out and comes to Moses, sorry. <laughs> he comes out to his father-in-law, <laughs> who's this high priest. You know, and he says, I've come to you I, your father-in-law, Jethro, have come to you, your wife, and your two sons with her. So, so out goes the, the chief rabbi, which is Moses, went out to meet his father-in-law, and he prostrates himself before him. Imagine that. Moses prostrating himself before the highest priest of, like, you know, like, every single thing that the Torah forbids. But also, 
also, I mean, obviously a great wealth of spirituality, which Torah doesn't forbid, meaning all the Kabbalistics, cool stuff. Um, and <laughs> listen to this. He prostrated himself and kissed him. And each inquired about the other's well-being. And they came to the, to the tent. Which tent did they come to? I don't know whose tent this was. Moses told his father-in-law everything that Hashem had done to Pharaoh in Egypt for Israel's sake. All the travail that had befallen them on the way and that Hashem had rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good that Hashem had done Israel, that he had rescued it from the hand of Egypt, land of Egypt. And Jethro said, Blessed is Hashem who has rescued it from the land of Egypt. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, took a burnt offering and a feast offering for God. He basically converted at this point. And Aaron and all the elders of Israel came to eat bread with the father-in-law of Moses before God. Okay, you guys got the picture? And we all know what happened next is he starts telling Moses what to do, right? Because that's what father-in-laws are for. They tell you what to do. So he saw Moses was judging the whole nation by himself, and he gave him a whole way to, like, break it down to multiple judges. Anyway, how are we supposed to look at other traditions? And so I think I have a way to distinguish it. I think I have a way to distinguish it because, because the, the ethnocentric version of life that we've created for ourselves, denying that any other tradition has spirituality, it's not honest, it's not real. You got that? That's not possible. That we have, we definitely have, they don't have a Torah. They for sure don't have a Torah. They did not get that. And they also didn't necessarily get prophecy. It's even arguable that there was never, ever a non-Jewish prophet in history. Well, Everyone always says Bilaam. <laughs> but if you read the story of Bilaam, you really, if you, because the Torah doesn't say he's a prophet. When you actually read the Torah about Bilaam, it seems he's a sorcerer. Oh, Vadya wasn't Jewish? Such a great name. Well, was a convert. There's a convert. Oh. Uh, makes him Jewish. Yeah. Oh. Which is really cool that a convert achieves prophecy, if that's the case. Okay, we'll have to check. Anyway, the um, there was never a Gentile there was never a Gentile prophet except for maybe Bilam, but when you look at the actual story of Bilam, he's clearly a sorcerer. You know, one eyed Bilam. You know. <laughs> with a, you know, having an intimate relationship with his donkey. You know, like, he's, he's not a prophet. He doesn't, it just doesn't sound like a prophet. Because what you have to do to become a prophet is, is clear, 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 clean, 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 clean. But if you want to do some kind of freaky black magic stuff, you do the opposite. You get involved in the dark side. You become a dark side master. And he, he, I, think, I think most likely Bill was a prophet of the dark side, meaning he was a master of the dark side, but not a prophet. Not what we'd call a prophet. So the way I would maybe distinguish it is that we don't have the patent on spirituality. 
we do have a patent on having a clear path to God, like meaning because we have because we have the negative commandments, so we have a way to avoid dark side. And if you think about it, those negative commandments are just how to keep yourself out of the dark side, so that you're not in the in the way, you're not in evil's way. And that list is so helpful. You know, if you want to be thankful for anything in the Torah, be thankful for the negative commandments because it it's there to like, you know, it's just like if you're driving on a highway, be thankful for the caution signs because it's dangerous and the life's dangerous. And you want to you want to arrive safely at the other end of life, and the negative commandments are the are the they're your best friends. You know, those those keep you on the straight and narrow. Prophecy the world hasn't had. Terror they don't have. I think there's also oversized cults out there. Do you know what an oversized cult is? Oversized cult is, is they're called religions. Is that when you have, if you find ten people believing in something, I imagine that if you found... If you found 10 Muslims and there were only 10 Muslims on earth, would you say that was a religion or a cult? I mean, they all believe that Muhammad heard something in a cave. Is that a religion or a cult if there's 10 of them? Okay, Christianity, that God had a son with Mary. You know, which is a little strange. But God had a son with Mary and, and he's the son of God. And if you believe in him, then you go to heaven. No matter what you, no matter how you behaved. And if you don't believe in him, you go to hell, no matter how you behaved. And we're, we're all going to hell for sure. <laughs> According to them. So, so now if you only found 10 people in the world believing in that, would you say you found a religion or a cult? Now, if you add a billion people to that 10, meaning now you have a if you have a billion and ten of them, would you say you have a cult or a religion? A billion and ten? A yeah, religion. So that might be the way to distinguish it, is that you've got, is that, is that there is definitely spirituality out there that's beyond, that is, that is um, not a joke. As we see that Yisro, Jethro, was considered of spiritual import by Moses, the head of Israel. And so therefore we know there's such a thing as spirituality out there. It's not Torah, it's not Judaism, it's not Kabbalah, it's not prophecy. Doesn't know how to avoid the dark side. Maybe probably, maybe uses the dark side. But then there's such things as cults on steroids called religions and that's what that is. And that, I wouldn't necessarily say, is a place of spirituality. I'm blessing everyone with a good Shabbos. I'm out of town this week, next week, and the following week. And then I'll be flying in on a Friday. So I probably won't be having guests that week. Maybe third meal in the fourth, that fourth week. Um, no, I'm going to be in spot. Anyway, blessings to everybody. Let's love around. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.